That was something when the kids were leaving, huh? (laughs) Some of you are wondering, what? Where are they taking those children? (laughs) What are they doing to them? And there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth (laughs) at the gates of the Sunday school room. We heard a lot of that yesterday. We took um, my wife and I took all of our children. um, So uh, five kids packed into our suburban up to Lake Tahoe yesterday. As well, we took our, uh, our, our foreign exchange student, uh, Noto, who's staying with us for two weeks from Japan. We took him. We had all eight of us packed in this suburban. It was hot August nights up there. We didn't know that. It took four hours to get to our, our beach. It was, it, was, it was an interesting car ride. We finally got there. Um, also, my, uh, one, of my, one of my close friends, who I affectionately call my, my redneck friend, came, came with us. You know you're a redneck if when you go to Lake Tahoe, you strap a cooler and a sailboard to the top of your Toyota Tercel. <laughs> not a truck, not a Jeep, a Toyota. We got up there and had some, he had some near-death experiences as he uh, tried some things in the lake. Many a redneck, their famous last words have been, watch this. And so we had a couple watch this moments. I looked over at one point, and uh, my son Jackson, those of you who know him, what a kid, the Jackson, my, my five-year-old, my wife and I look over and he's off by himself and he is laying down on his back completely still on the beach with a piece of bread on his forehead. And he's trying to lure in seagulls. <laughs> like that kid. This <laughs> is great, right? What a blessing from the Lord. <laughs> we just laughed and laughed. I don't want to know what he was going to do with that seagull. <laughs> Those of you who know Jackson know it wasn't going to be pretty. He's going to go Jack Bauer on the, on the seagull. Uh, page 851, if you're using one of the Bibles that are in, uh, in your chair there. Uh, we're sitting through 1 Timothy. Uh, 1 Timothy. Paul is writing this letter to his, his dearest friend, Timothy, who is, is overwhelmed probably in a very large church in Ephesus. And he's... He's writing to him and his, his goal, his intention is to help Timothy and to help his church. He's trying to help them set their course in a, a God-honoring direction. And Timothy finds himself in a culture that is not helpful to that end. Uh, a culture that is void of Christ. A culture that is void of the Gospel, the good news. Uh, much like the culture that we live in today. And so this is, this is Paul's goal with his dear friend is to help him to to stay true this is the course timothy and and this is how you are to keep this course so it's very applicable very applicable to each of us today and today we're going to look at chapter two verses verses one through eight um i I love this text and 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 to to give you you all a bit of of preparation um i believe that uh, some of the things that we're going to talk about today have have been um, historically, some some controversial. There's a controversial text here uh, that we're going to that we're going to go through, and so some of you, um, most likely, some of you may find today's text, and, and certainly um, my interpretation of it, you may find it uh, offensive. Um, and it's not going to get any better because because next week we're talking about Paul talks about women being silent in in churches. So we've got a couple we've got a couple sermons here. Okay, we've got some overcrowding issues. And so plan B is actually two services. Plan A is these two sermons. We'll see how this goes and reevaluate after this, but Lord willing, this can be good. So let's pray and uh, we'll get started. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. And thank You for giving us, Your people, so much truth. God, we know that we only see in part. One day we're going to see You face to face and we're going to know things that are not possible for us to know in this life. And we, We look forward to that, God, but we're so thankful that You've given us so much truth. That You have given us uh, certainly enough to think lowly of ourselves and highly of You. 
You've given us enough to, to cause us to, to love and cherish and treasure You more than any other treasure in this world. If there are those here today, Lord, including my own slow-to-love heart, there are some of us here today who, who are not treasuring You the way we ought, who are caught up in uh, circumstances or disappointments or accomplishments. We're caught up in things in this life and we have lost sight of, of our greatest treasure. We're loving things more than we love You. God, will You remind us today why You are our greatest treasure. Uh, that we would be a people overwhelmed filled up, overflowing with thankfulness and gratitude, worshiping You. We ask this and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's the main point today. I'll read it a few times and we're just going to talk about this. Verses 1-8. through By way of summary, here is Paul's main point. The godly life which pleases God is a quiet and peaceful life of hope and evangelistic prayer for all people and is rooted in God's desire that all people be saved as demonstrated through Christ Jesus giving Himself as a ransom for all people. You'll see three times in this text today all. All people. All people. All people. So let me read that main point one more time. The godly life which pleases God is a quiet and peaceful life of hope and evangelistic prayer for all people and is rooted in God's desire that all people be saved as demonstrated through Christ Jesus giving Himself as a ransom for all people. So in the middle of what we're reading today, verses 4 through 6, is the root. We'll get there. It is the root of what Paul is calling the church and Timothy to do. He's, he's asking for specific behavior and conduct among God's people. That's the fruit. But the root of it is verses 4 through 6. And verses 1 through 3, very generally speaking, is the fruit that should come from that root. And then verses 7 of chapter 2, all the way through chapter 3, verse 13, he's going to deal specifically with men and women and elders and deacons and say, this is the fruit that is rooted in this truth that we're going to look deeply at in verses 4 through 6. That's why at the end of this section, Paul is going to say in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things, what he's written and what he's going to write, I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So he's writing so that the church will know how to behave. So that you and me will know how to conduct ourselves as Christians in His church. And the godly life, he says here, is a quiet life of hope and evangelistic prayer for all people. And that is pleasing to God. And that is rooted in the fact that God desires that all people would be saved. Specifically, to come to a knowledge of the truth. And that is demonstrated through Jesus Christ dying as a ransom for all people. But verse 1 of chapter 2. First of all, okay, so Paul is saying this is priority. This is of highest importance. I'm going to ask you to do many things, but first of all, highest importance then, then, in other words, based on everything that I have said already. So Paul is looking back and he's calling his people to look back. First of all then, based on everything I've said, okay, there are men in your church who are teaching things that are undermining the truth, that are 
undermining the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are men in your church, Timothy, who are thinking too highly of themselves and they're not thinking highly enough of God. Men like Hymenaeus and Alexander. Came out and named them last week. So looking back at that, that's happening in your church then, I urge, which is as strong as he can say this, Right? This is your top priority. This is what I'm urging your church to do. He's been talking more specifically to Timothy up to this point. So Paul said, Timothy, this is what you're to busy, be busy doing. Confront okay, men like Hymenaeus and Alexander. Confront these men. Call them out. Call these teachers to the mat. What about the rest of the church? Paul now gives general instruction of how he expects the rest of the church to conduct themselves. This is what the rest of the church should be doing. And the answer Paul gives is praying. Prayer is what Paul calls this church to do. Of highest, highest importance. First of all then, I urge what? That supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made. How? For all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. Why? Why is He calling them to do this? Why is this of most importance? That we may lead a peaceful and quiet... It's kind of funny timing. That we may lead a peaceful... In quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And now he goes even deeper as to the why of this, because this is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. So he goes through. He says, this is what I want the church to be doing. Supplications. Okay, He's just going to rattle off four different ways of praying. Supplications, in other words, making your requests known to God. It is a way of demonstrating your dependence on God. Bringing your needs before Him. Then he uses a very general word for prayer. Then he says intercession. Intercession is where we're bringing to God not only our own needs, but the needs of other people. And then he says thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, which if you think about it, is the only form of prayer that we will engage in for eternity. There will come a day when... We will no longer bring our petitions and requests to God where we will no longer be inter- intercessing, but there will never come a day where we won't be offering thanksgiving to God for what He's done. So Paul just breaks it down and says, I want all kinds of prayer, all kinds of prayer for what? All people. For all people, for kings and all who are in high Positions. So who are they to pray for? Who are you to pray for? Who am I to pray for? And Paul says, all people. Apparently in Ephesus, from these false teachers, there were these sort of elitists or these exclusivists who, who were praying for those who were in their inner circle. Right? Their family and their friends, maybe the Jews, but... But not the Gentiles, not those, those outsiders, people that you pray for and that are... Isn't that true for yourself? There are people who are easy to pray for. There are people that you find it easy to pray for. It just rattles off of your, your thoughts. But then there are people that it's very difficult to pray for. At least to pray good things for. Your, your enemies or uh, opponents, competitors in your life. You find it difficult to pray for these people. There are are those that you wish you could block in real life. And those are the people that we're called by Paul to to pray for. But he says specifically, not just for all people, what does he say? Specifically, for kings and all those who are in high positions. So, he says specifically to this church that when I say pray for all people, make sure that you're praying for, for kings. Make sure that you're praying for those who are in authority over you. Now we still live in, in in a in a culture where we are are blessed to have civil leaders. And the Bible makes it very clear that we are to 
pray for these leaders. And Paul makes a specific point here. Perhaps because it is a temptation for us to very easily dismiss or, or despise or to abandon those who are in positions of authority over us. Especially, right, as, as individualistic Americans. We may be tempted to despise those who are in authority over us or to dismiss them or to abandon them. Those who are in positions of authority who are making decisions that, that, that effect and affect us. We may find it difficult to pray for these people. Here's what you can do as a Christian. right? And I think a distinction needs to be made here. I'm not so sure we, we do so great with this. You can certainly uh, disagree. You can certainly disagree with politicians, for example. And you can disagree with policies, for example. You can and you will as a Christian. You will disagree with politicians and you will disagree with policies. Right? We hear plenty of that. You turn on certain radio stations, right? Certain radio programs. And you hear Christians or self-proclaimed Christians who are voicing disagreement with politicians and with policies. But, but here's the question that we have to ask ourselves in light of this Scripture. Can we as Christians mock and slander those who are in positions of authority over us and still pray for them with any sort of sincerity? That's something as Christians we should take a a good look at, I think. Because do we not hear lots of mocking? Do we not hear lots of slandering? And it's not that in one hand. This is what Paul is talking about. And then token prayers. And then when you're in front of others or with other Christians, and Lord, we, we pray that You would please bless our president and have him impeached and, and whatever it is that you pray, right? Now the question is, can you with any sort of sincerity for anyone, let alone those who are in authority over you, can you pray for them? I mean sincerely. Because don't do the hypocritical Christian thing. Can you pray for them genuinely from your heart with sincerity on one hand, if in the other hand you are mocking and slandering them? Can you do that with anyone? Can you do that with those who are in authority over you? So be very careful, right? Be very careful. What does Paul call us to do? He calls us to pray for these people. Don't forget what Romans 13, 1 and 2 says. There is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment. He Daniel 2.21 says, removes kings and sets up kings. So don't forget that. When we start blaming people and blaming individuals, we're not saying that you don't disagree, but are you, Paul's admonition, sincerely praying for those who are in authority? Or are we mocking them? And then what does Paul say even more specifically is the kind of life that pleases and honors God. That, why is he encouraging them to pray? That we may lead a, what kind of life? A peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. I wonder... I wonder if most evangelical Christians today, if most evangelical Christians today, in regards to their civil life and responsibilities, are seen as peaceful and quiet and godly and dignified. This, Paul says, is what is pleasing to God. 
Right, and never, never mind, never mind the, the, the nuts who are putting bombs in, in abortion clinics, and, and never mind those who are presuming to be God's messengers of, of judgment or, or those who are making protests at, at, at military funerals. Are there, though, more subtle ways in which we are not, as Christians, in regards to what Paul is speaking about here, living lives that are peaceful and quiet and godly and dignified, who we are in the privacy of our hearts and in our homes and in our churches or in public, praying sincerely that God would work and that God would move in our country, for example. So Paul says also in 1 Thessalonians 4.11, And to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. And then curiously, we jump ahead to verse 8. Who does Paul say is to lead in this? Paul answers that in verse 8 if we jump ahead. Who does Paul say is supposed to lead in this? I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So men, we'll look more at this next week, but men, we are called to lead. And we're called to lead in prayer. So we must ask ourselves, in the church today, are men leading? More specifically, are men leading in prayer? Now some say when Paul says men here, he meant women. If you look at the Greek, it actually means women. It doesn't. It doesn't mean mankind. Paul specifically is saying, okay, I want this church, I want you to pray. I want you to pray for those who are in authority over you. I want you to lead peaceful, quiet, godly, dignified lives. Men. Paul does this frequently. The Bible does this frequently. Men lead in this. Step out in front. Take the initiative. Be decisive. Set the precedence. Be men who are lifting holy hands in prayer. Rather than being those men who are just in the background angry and quarreling. Step out and lead in peaceful, godly, quiet ways. Lifting holy hands to God in prayer. And that's not even the controversial part of this sermon, but we'll talk more about that next week. Now let's look at verses 4 through 6. Because here is the root. So remember that main point. Okay, there's a life that Paul, that God, is after here in his people. There's this godly life that is hopefully and lovingly oriented toward others, right? Through a peaceful, quiet life and through prayer evangelistic prayer. Okay, that is the life that God is after and it's rooted in according to verses 4 through 6. That kind of life is rooted in God's desire that all people be saved as demonstrated through Christ Jesus dying as a ransom, giving Himself up as a ransom for all people. So in other words, we are, as Christians, we are to hope and pray for all people. And we are to hope and pray, not just for our inner circle, not just our friends, not just our family members, not just people that look like us, not just those we want in our church, but we are to pray and to hope for all people. And the reason for that the reason we hope and pray for all people is because God's desire, and we're created in His image, is that God's desire is that all people would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So you get that? So God's desire should be our desire. 
So I want you praying for all these people, even those that you are tempted to despise, dismiss, and abandon like your president. Those in authority over you who have been put there by God. I want you to pray for all these people. And the reason I want you to pray for all these people is because God's heart is for all these people. This is meant to be the, the root that, that drives the, the fruit. So this is... Some of you may know this. Some of you may not. Verse 4 specifically is a, is a controversial verse. And it's a confusing verse for many. Namely because God desires something that doesn't happen. I mean, God desires that all people be saved. Well, the question then is, well then why aren't all people saved? I mean, if I desire something and it doesn't happen, you're like, well, yeah. I'm a human being. There's a lot of things that I want and, and, and desire... They don't, but Psalm 115 says, Our God is in the heavens and He does whatever He pleases. So, I mean, God gets, right? God gets His way. God's desires are, are met. God's not frustrated. Man, if only I could overcome these obstacles. I mean, God is in, in heaven like... Our God is in the heavens and He does whatever He pleases. So how does God have a desire all people be saved? But I mean, we know John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whosoever would believe in Him shall have eternal life. And we look around and, and, and a lot of people aren't believing in Jesus. So obviously they're, they're not having eternal life. They're not saved. So what's going on here? God desires that all people would be saved, but all people are not being saved. So what's the deal? So, there are at least two ways of interpreting this verse. And here's where we get into a very popular debate today, represented by two systems of theology that have existed for hundreds of years that, that view Scripture through fairly different lenses. So depending on which lens you're looking through, you may think this verse says something other than it says. And the two camps, as, as labeled for the last 500 years or so, are Calvinism and Arminianism. And here is those views in, in a nutshell. So please, in a nutshell, please don't email me this afternoon you know, articles and links to books and, and tell me that I missed some things. I, I know. In a nutshell, here's the difference. Here's where everyone agrees. God, and this is good news, God is calling out to everyone, everywhere, from Adam and Eve on, and saying, turn to me and be saved. God is calling out to all people, turn to Me and be saved. And God has made that possible and has made the provision for reconciliation. You can finish my sentence, right? Through Jesus Christ. And if we got Bob Arminian up here and John Calvinist up here, right? They agree so far. They're buddies. They're holding hands. Maybe not holding hands. They're buddies. <laughs> Eating lunch. It's all good. God is calling out to everyone, everywhere, turn to Me and be saved. How is that possible? Place your faith in Jesus Christ. So God is saving all those who call out to Jesus Christ and trust in His substitutionary sacrifice in our place. Amen. Amen. We are saved through Christ alone. So everybody's good up until that point. But now, we start to go some separate ways. One, okay, the Arminian believes that 
God calls out to us that, that God makes His plea, that He makes His provision through Jesus Christ, and then every man, woman, child has the power, the ability, the freedom to either accept or reject Jesus Christ. And all those who accept Jesus Christ are who is called in Scripture the elect. Right? That's not a Calvinistic word. Election's everywhere in your Bible. There's different definitions of what it means. So the Arminian believes that those who choose God and don't reject but accept Him, believe that they are the elect. So the foundational choice there is man's choice, not God's choice. It is Arminian theology. So, God's man says, I choose you. Actually, man elects God. And then God says, me too. Me too. That is one view. Now there's a Calvinistic view. God is calling out to all men, come to me, be saved. The provision is through Jesus Christ. But here's the difference. Here's the difference. Calvinist believes that Man does not have the power or the ability to choose to follow Jesus Christ. To choose to do anything good for that matter because our sinful nature is so corrupt that we will not ever freely choose God. And that is the condition that mankind is in. So everybody has this big debate over free will. Everybody has a free will in that no one is ever coerced or forced into making these spiritual decisions, including by God. But our wills are not free in the sense that we always have reasons for everything that we choose to do. We do whatever we want to do. But here's what a Calvinist would say, what I would say, what Scripture says, and that is that we have freedom to do whatever we want, but all we want to do is sin and rebel and run from God, not to Him. So in Arminian theology, God offering the Gospel, providing a provision through Christ, and then God is at that point done. And now the ball is in your court. God is a gentleman. You've heard all these expressions. He's standing at the door and knocking. Revelation 3.20, taken out of context. It leaves out the part about the Holy Spirit sneaking into the basement and coming in and helping you open the door. But... <laughs> and so God has done at that point. The ball is in your court. It's up to you. Now, Calvinistic theology reads Scripture very differently and believes all that, but believes even more. Believes even more that God must and does do more than just freely offer the Gospel. He comes with some, His elect. And He does a radical work in their heart. Takes a heart of stone, gives a heart of flesh. He opens blind eyes. He raises the spiritually dead. He opens deaf ears. He regenerates. He causes to be born again. And then as a newborn spiritual baby, we cry out in faith to Jesus, enabled by God. So the Arminian order is God's call, and then faith, and then regeneration, born again. Calvinistic theology, God's call, regeneration. God must do a work in us. We are incapable spiritually without His help. Then we cry out in faith. So here's where this text gets fought over, right? Because it has been typically one of the pillar texts of Arminian theology that says, see, God desires all men to be saved. So God comes up and He, he, says, he calls out, but He doesn't do a further work in some he doesn't unconditionally elect some. If he did that, that would be biased. Genuine love wouldn't be possible, etc., etc. God doesn't go any further. He stops it. My desire is that all of you would be saved. And historically, most Calvinists have 
kind of tweak the meaning of this verse. It's not perfectly reasonable, actually. But to say, well, actually, when it says that God desires all men to be saved, what that means is not that God desires all people, every individual to be saved, but God desires all kinds of people to be saved. Now, you see, that works. Now, a Calvinist can sleep well at night and say, see, I love that verse too. I don't have to cut it out of my Bible. He's not saying that he desires every man to be saved and so his will is frustrated and he only elects some. He doesn't elect others. No, God desires all kinds of people. Now, actually, I mean, great theologians have, have held to that and it's, it's totally reasonable in this text. I mean, Paul calls us to, right, to pray for all people. Does he mean literally to pray for all people? People, every individual? I mean, quit your job. That's going to be difficult. Or does he mean to pray for all kinds of people, including those in authority? And then does he mean that God desires all kinds of people? In other words, up until this point, it was just the Jews, but, but now all kinds of people, Gentiles, or people from every tongue and tribe and nation. Isn't that what Revelation 5.9 says? And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain... Jesus, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tongue and language and people and nation. So, typically they've said, yeah, see, God desires all kinds of people to be saved. Or, the only other interpretation is that this is an expression of God's heart. When Paul says all people, he means all people. I think that's what it means. We've got so many other verses, like 1 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises. Some count slowness. But is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. John 3.16, For God so loved the world, that's for God to love the elect. Or, or Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, elect. No, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. John seven thirty seven and thirty eight. All you, if you're thirsty, anyone who thirsts, come to me. Anyone. So there's this call to everyone, and we have scripture that expresses scripture upon scripture that that God really desires that. All people would be saved. But then we have Scripture that makes it very clear that God is only saving some people. So you see the difficulty. Okay, this, is, this is where we're going to go, just to jump ahead. Don't throw anything out of your Bible. If it doesn't fit, if it's clear what it says, but it doesn't fit with your framework, don't throw out the text. Throw out your framework. And let God's Word say what God's Word says. And if it doesn't make sense or you have a hard time reasoning it out, you're well within the mark to assume that the problem might be in here and not in here. I mean, just listen, listen, to, listen to these verses. I mean, it is clear. You cannot get around this in God's Word that God's will is to save all. And you cannot get around this. God's will is to save some. I mean, it's everywhere. God's desire is that all men would be saved. And God's desire is to unconditionally elect some. Don't throw one out. My encouragement would be, I believe Paul's encouragement is, hold tightly to both. Listen to these verses where we see that when the Bible talks about what God's will is and God's desire is, that there are, there are many different ways that the Bible talks about God's will. Right? There is His revealed will, and His secret will. There is what God says, His will of command, what you need to do, and how you need to live. Mark 7.21 says that 
that those who do not do the will of the Father, He says, depart from Me, I, I never knew you. In Mark chapter 12, Jesus says, these are My brothers and sisters, those who do the will of My Father. So there's a revealed will of God. Do this, do this, do this. But then there's a secret will of God. His will of decree. There's what God is calling us to do and an expression of that in His Word. And this is what God desires. This is His will. But then there's what God is actually doing. And sometimes, sometimes it appears, it appears that those contradict one another. But in fact, they're compatible. In God's mind, maybe not in our mind. I mean, just, just listen to these examples. Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now that, the, the crucifixion of Jesus was not according to God's will, in one sense, right? It was not God's desire that humans would kill God. Clearly, murder is a sin, His revealed will, let alone murdering God. But then, what do we get insight into here? That these men who were murdering Jesus were doing everything according to what? The definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So God's will of desire, God's will of command, do not murder. God's will of decree, that these men would murder Jesus. For God's plan. There's more. Acts 4, 27 and 28, about the same cross. For truly in the city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do what? Whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Revelation 17, 17. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. We would all agree that is against God's will. It is not God's will that we would rage against the Lamb of God. God's will is clearly that we would trust and believe and love the Lamb of God. But what does the next verse say about what these men were doing? For God has put it into their hearts to carry out His purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. Or how about Exodus 8, chapter 1? Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. That's God's revealed will. Pharaoh, let my people go. But now we see another will of God at work, don't we? God's plan, His decree. Chapter 4, verse 21 of Exodus. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let my people go. Do you see that? Do you see two different wills being expressed in God. One, Pharaoh, let my people go. Second, God working in Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let God's people go. We're creating massive problems this morning. Mark chapter 1, Jesus says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus is saying this to all people. Repent and believe the gospel. And then chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, Jesus says, And He said to them, to His disciples, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. Why? So that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. That is wild. Did you hear what Jesus did in two separate verses? One, He taught, turn to Me and be saved, all of you. And then He tells His disciples, I'm going to speak to them in parables so that they don't understand and turn to Me. Two wills in God. God calling, commanding, and revealing. And then God beyond often our understanding, working in secret ways to accomplish His good and perfect purpose. And Christians need to be okay with that.
and stop putting Bible verses in the blender and making them say things they do not say. Exodus. Right? Let's make it worse. Exodus chapter 33, verse 11. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Here, it's very much like 1 Timothy 2.4, God expressing his desire. My desire is that all men would be saved. Ezekiel 33.11, I desire that, that, that none, 1 Peter 2.9, I mean, I desire that none should perish. Okay? And Ezekiel 33.11, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And yet we read this, in 1 Samuel 1, 2, 24 and 25, about Eli's sons who are disobeying God, but they would not listen to the voice of their father. Eli tried to admonish them. Why didn't they listen to the voice of their father? Because, for, it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. See, we've got to know what to do with these verses because other people know these verses and ask questions about these verses and people who are Christians for 30 years, their faith comes tumbling down because they're not reading and understanding and looking into God's Word. God just says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And then He says, my desire is to put these two men to death. So God is doing something that He does not desire. He desires that all men would be saved, but God is working so that all men are not saved. It's clear throughout history. God desires one thing, He says. But then it's working in ways that seem to contradict what He desires. And this is all over in our Bible. Listen to the extent of God's control and His sovereignty. Amos 3.6 Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Isaiah 45.7 I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Friends, a weak, shallow theology will not do. A weak, shallow, God puts the ball in your court sort of theology will not do. Lamentations 3, 37 and 38. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? See, the little Christian bubble that doesn't wrestle with these questions will not do. The, the dismissal of, of, of our friends and our culture's difficult questions will not do. We must look deeply into God's Word. This is why this kind of control, this, this will of decree, God's plan that is working underneath and always. This is why Paul says in Acts 18.1, I will return to you, what? If the Lord wills. And it's the Old Testament understanding in Proverbs 16.9, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. So this is the, the main point. They're looking at these, these different texts that are compatible, but that may seem initially to contradict one another. And it is this. We should put our hand over our own mouth and not put our hand over God's mouth. And this is what we do when we when we take God's Word and try to make it say what we want or need it to say so that we can reasonably and logically work out everything in a nice, orderly fashion. And you may not be able to do that. I have, after seven years, actually been able to because God's Word is reasonable to see and to understand and appreciate and to love how these are compatible and how God is working and how His will of desire and His will of decree. But initially, I just had to accept it and just say, I cannot get around this. I, I cannot take any kind of shortcut. Both true. 
But the tendency is what? The tendency is, is, is for the Arminian, for example, to look and say, see, 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 see. God desired, First Timothy 2, 4, I've got my verse. So weird. So Arminians, we've got our verses, and Calvinists, we've got our verses. That should tell you something's kind of off. We should all have the same verses, right? But we'll say, see, see, look, look, look. God desires that all men would be saved. So God can't bring disaster to a city. So there is a wholesale Arminian rejection of what all those verses mean that I just read. No, God is not in control to that extent. God's sovereignty is not exhaustive. God is not working for or against anyone. The ball is in our court. God is a gentleman. He doesn't go any further. There is no such thing as effectual calling. These things are, 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 are myth. It doesn't exist. See, 1 Timothy 2.4, God desires that all men would be saved. Therefore, God can't unconditionally elect some, and therefore, God can't bring disaster to a city, but then a Calvinist does the same thing. And then he goes to his verses and says, See, God brings disaster to a city. See, Ephesians 1, Romans 8, 9, and 10, Genesis through Revelation, God unconditionally elects some. See, you can't get around that. Therefore, God can't desire all men to be saved. It must mean God desire all kinds of people to be saved. You see how it works. And so we begin maligning Scripture. You should have a framework. You should lean on smarter and better theologians who have gone before you that were God's gift to His church that He talks about in His Word that are teachers. You should lean on them and look for help in understanding God's Word. There's no problem with, if you qualify it, calling yourself a Calvinist or an an Arminian or, or whatever it is. There's nothing wrong with adopting to a system and a framework that largely defines how you view Scripture. That is good and that is important. But make sure that your framework does not supersede the text. Little f, big T. Alistair Begg says. Little f, big T. Let the Scripture speak for itself. And in this case, God desires all men to be saved. How do we work that out? I'll just give this and then conclude. It's how people deal with this verse. One is, well, is there something more powerful than God? So God desires that all men would be saved, but there's something more powerful than Him that's keeping all people from being saved. So Christians reject that. God is omnipotent. There is nothing more powerful than God. So clearly, God truly desires that all men would be saved. Both Calvinists and Arminianists alike have said there is something that God desires even more. Can you see that in your own life? Do you have desires that maybe you don't even follow through with because there's something you desire even more? I tell you, I do not sincerely I take no pleasure in ever introducing any kind of physical pain to my children. That is my heart. I take absolutely no pleasure in that. My desire is that I never, ever again have to spank any of my children. That is my heart's desire. But friends there is something I desire even more. It is that they will yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. It is that folly will be driven from their heart. And so, for example, I will spank my boys because there is a greater desire. Friends, that's just on a human level. Our God's emotions not far more complex than ours you realize God, the Bible makes it clear that God is happy all the time and angry all the time. 
He is constantly furious over the sin of the world. Just, fur- just fuming. Just, he is literally just boiling and his wrath is just gaining momentum until he unleashes it on that final day. I mean, God is an angry God. And he is totally happy every day. Just ecstatic. Just singing, rejoicing every time one person comes to repentance. So he's totally happy and totally angry. I mean, God can hear the prayers of millions of people at the same time. I mean, clearly, God's emotions are complex. Are we going to limit God? Or are we going to put our hand over our own mouth? Well, what is it that God desires more? Now, you've got to wrestle through that in Scripture, but here are the two things. Arminians believe that God's greater desire is that He, was, he is committed... He is committed to preserving human self-determination and the possible resulting genuine love between man and God. That is what God desires more. He could unconditionally elect some, but no, He wants to give everyone just this power and ability so that it is all them and their choice is foundational and it's like real romantic sort of understanding in today's culture kind of a love relationship that is then only possible. And friends, I believe it's totally a philosophical argument. Not biblical. And that kind of free will is not biblical. And it is assumed everywhere in the Bible. And it's not true. John Owen called it a mere lie. The reality is, friends, we are free and that we are never forced. We are never coerced. We are free to do whatever we want to do. But what we want to do is sin. And apart from something more from God, we will sin our way happily to hell. But God is good and gracious. He would be good and gracious to save none. He would be good and gracious to let all of us walk in the direction that we are born walking, depraved away from Him. God would be good to save one. Friends, God is good and gracious to, I don't know, save millions? To work in millions of hearts? The other side says that God's desire is not to preserve human self-determination. God's desire is to display the full scope of His glory through His mercy and His justice, through His mercy and His wrath. And so He chooses, in His perfect will, He chooses to let some go the way of wrath and destruction to justice. And He chooses to pluck some, His bride that He pursues. He chooses to go after some and to take them home and to call them His sons and daughters. Friends, do not get swept up in a theology that thinks that God doesn't do anything different from those who end up in heaven and those who end up in hell. Just the offer and that's it. And He doesn't do anything further for His bride. He does. And if you're a Christian, He came after you and pursued you and saved you and it had absolutely nothing to do with the power of your will. It had everything to do with His good and pleasing. You were born not of the will of man, John 1 says, but of the will of God. So that, You have nothing, nothing to boast in. That is what God desires more. That you have nothing to boast in. It was not your human self-determination that got you in. It was God's determination that got you in. And if left to yourself, you would go justly and rightly where you and I belong. And it was God's grace and mercy displayed in opening your heart, Acts chapter 16 in shining His light into your heart to show you the glory that is in the face of Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 4.6. To Ephesians 2.5, you were dead in your sin, not sick, and He made you alive again. To Ezekiel 11, to take your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh to redeem you so that you called out in faith. But your faith did not pull the trigger for God to say, Me too. God pulled the trigger. And you have Him alone to praise. I get fired up because I really believe 
while I can put my arm around these other theologies and while I can be friends with these other theologies, I think that they, they rip and tear at the heart of the Gospel of just how good God is and how gracious God is and how far God has gone to get you. And so based on that, Paul looks at Christians and says, this is God's heart. Pray. Pray. Friends, do you desire that all people would be saved? This is a big one in our Christian subculture. Do we desire to preach the Gospel or do we desire to preach moral conformity? Ask yourself, because it doesn't look like this at large. Do you really desire that people would be saved or do you just want people to act like they're saved? Do you really want people to be saved or do you want them to stop kissing each other in front of Chick-fil-A? Reasonable question. So you laugh now, you're going to cry on the way home. What do you desire more? Do you just want, every, you just want a utopia? Do you just want everybody going to church and nobody doing bad things and just stop smoking and stop drinking and just stop cussing and stop getting tattoos? You are in the wrong church. <laughs> there are a lot of cussers, smokers, drinkers, and tattoo decorated people here. What do you desire? Do you slander and mock those in authority? Because they're helping to perpetuate a culture that just grosses you out and angers you and infuriates you and makes you upset? Or is your heart's desire, for example, that our president would hear the gospel? That he would come to know Christ? And he would be a fellow heir of the fortunes in heaven. Evaluate your heart. Are we a people who are so in tune with God's heart that all would be saved? That we have a mindset that goes beyond our backyard and beyond our neighborhood. A global mindset. Maybe we're even in tune with what is going on in the world and in government, not so that we can mock and slander, but so that we can be equipped to pray because our desire is that all would be saved. I'll pray. We'll take communion together as a family. If you would come and exit into the middle and we have leaders up here and then go back to your seat along the outside, that helps things to flow well. And in this time, we are remembering this ransom that was paid by Christ for you, for me, Christian. There was a debt that you owed that you could not pay. Jesus paid it. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, we... We are completely incapable on our own. And spiritually, Lord, we are lost, wicked, rebellious, broken. Unless You intervene, God. So our hope and our prayer is that as Your Gospel goes out, Father, we're not done praying. We don't believe that it's now up to man. We pray as Your good news goes out that now You would send Your Holy Spirit that He would grab hearts today and in days to come. And He would call out of darkness and into light Your children. God, we know that in this city right now there are those who are appointed by You for eternal life. And we know that they will believe. And we know it will be through the preaching of Your good news and the work of Your Holy Spirit in their hearts. 
So Father, come and do this work among us. Make us a people who love and treasure You more than we love and treasure anything else. We give You all praise and glory and honor in the name of and for the sake of Jesus Christ. Amen.